Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Good morning, church. Great expectations. I know as we come into Christmas as a little kid, how many of you can remember the pre-Christmas jitters, the like the super amped up, like, oh my goodness, here it comes. And we expect a lot of those things. I mean, it's, it, it's a, there's somewhere in transition, is it somewhere, there's some of that weird year that happens when you go from getting the coolest toy to socks. And we mourn that loss. It's like, no, no, wait. Then as you get into adulthood, everybody wants a new snap-on toolbox or something cool, a new race car. And so the guys you shop for are just like the toys are bigger. But we have all these expectations. And what I wanted to do through this series is, is kind of dovetail into the expectations that we can re- relate to of the season of Christmas with all the expectations that the Bible says we will fulfill. And to do it in such a way that's honest. And because and, and, Christmas has that time where we all think we're getting that cool super gift and then you wake up as a teenager and you realize your parents didn't buy it or whoever really liked you didn't hey, fork over the $10,000 cash. But the Bible is incredibly honest and I've said that a lot of times it's what the expectations were moving into this season, literally for these people that said, hey, hey, the Messiah is born. What then does that mean? And we'll start this series clear to page three. If you don't have a Bible this morning on the, the story Bible, it literally is page three. So we'll start right at the beginning. What are the expectations right off the get-go? So we'll start in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God from among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you. you I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Expectations right at the beginning. So Satan takes the form of a crafty, deceptive serpent and challenges Eve's understanding and consequence of God's word. Look where Satan goes right straight after. Did God really say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of any tree? In the garden, Eve responds with the directive God gave her in Genesis 2.16, but even adds another little rule. Not only did he say we couldn't eat it, but he said we made up a rule that says don't even touch it. Hey, that tree's got some good food on it. Yeah. That tree's good to look at. That thing is pretty. Now, if you were at the house yesterday, there was some food there that sure looked pretty. And that's got some good fruit on him. Hey that, hey, that tree produces knowledge. That's good to be desired. What's wrong with desiring a little bit of knowledge? Eve eats. And she hands it to her onlooking, silently passive husband who takes his turn. Sin is committed. What is the definition of sin? James lays that out as he does so many things so directly. If you know the right thing to do and you choose not to do it, there's a sin. God was pretty clear. In fact, even Adam and even come up with a little extra rule. Don't even touch it. Not only we won't eat it, but we won't even touch it. She knew. They knew. Sin was committed. And when was the sin committed? Actually, when she ate? Or when did it start taking its ferment? man we do the same thing before you do anything dumb you thought about doing something dumb and we have an incredible way of deceiving ourselves and thinking the dumb idea can be made a good idea and we can develop a case for it but the cool thing about the bible is who comes first who comes walking in in the cool of the evening in the perfect garden who shows up god takes a stroll jesus seeks them out and they can hear him walking. Where are you? Where are you? Adam, hey, I heard you walking and I was afraid. I was naked. Well, who told you he's naked? Did you eat of the tree? Have you sinned? God knows they've sinned, but who's taking the first step to find him? Jesus is taking a stroll to help. I'm going to seek them out. Eve, what have you done? Hit pause a second. Eve, what have you done? Jesus says, Eve, what have you done? What are the consequences for him? Isn't like dumb Eve? I know you thought this through and it was a dumb idea. Now it's a, okay, really dumb idea. But when he says, what have you done? Imagine the thought in his head. I'm going to have to go get born, hang on a tree, and it's going to be a really rough day. What have you done? 
Jesus pursues the reconciliation. So he gives Eve, let's skip to Eve's curse. There's consequences for the sin. Ladies, those who've had children understand the pain of childbirth, and I'm just going to take that for granted. They say it's like men having 22 bones broken all at the same time. I've broken a bone, and I never want to experience that. Desire will be against your husband, and your husband will rule over you. We don't have time to explain what these are. Then there's Adam's curse. Hey, Adam, your curse curses the ground. There is going to be weeds. This weekend, when we were getting ready for the outdoor cookout, Sarah and I walked across the grass, and she, I got my mandals on, which is what I call sandals, except I wear them, so I redefine them as mandals. Them little stupid seeds in Florida, them, I call them Satan seeds. But they really should be called Adam seeds. You know, Adam, you made this curse. Them little things are nasty. And you cannot withdraw them from your body without making that part of your body bleed likewise. And if you look at this, what was easy to harvest? Hey, live here in the garden, eat of anything but here. That must have been a pretty cool smorgasbord of all delicacies. Just walk through the garden, hey, I'll take, eat that, eat that. The consequence of that, the product of getting to eat now is going to be extreme labor. That which was easy, which you could walk through and get readily, now will become a product of extreme labor. And remember, Satan said, you shall not surely die. He didn't. Adam didn't die that day. 930 years later, he did. 930 years with seeds to think about. Man, I remember getting that fruit so easy. At least Pastor Michael now gets to go to work, work is doing some flower stuff or doing all this horticultural work, and a week later gets to see it, the consequences of this hard work. Imagine being Adam going, whoa, that was a really sweet garden. To, mm, 930 years, God, to make your point. Then on the other side, we know that sin has its consequences. We agree to that, but we'd like to deny their effect. How long did it take Adam's eating of the fruit, committing this sin, to take its consequence? 930 years. The decision I made last weekend will have consequences for me and those around me on down the road. It's probably the hardest thing to teach anybody, let alone a teenager. You mean my decisions tonight on a Friday night at 2 in the morning is going to have consequences when I turn 34? Now, those of us who've made it to 34, we amen to that. But to teach an 18, 16, 15-year-old that the decisions you make today will may have huge ramifications later on in life is so hard to teach. Imagine Adam. The kids later. I'm telling you that's a sin. There's going to be consequences for that. I've had 930 years to see. So there's these curses to Adam and Eve, and let's get to the serpent's curse. You shall be cursed above all the creatures of the land. And God says there will be extreme hostility. The word enmity is not used often in the Old Testament. It's a state of deep-seated ill will, innate hostility, hatred, When these two saw each other from then on, they hated one another. 
Satan and Eve. God says, hey, Satan, here's going to be your curse. She's not going to like you forever, and it's going to be deep-seated. Eve's kid, Eve's offspring, will bruise, crush, violently compress Satan's head till it's out of shape. And Satan, you will bruise, compress, crush his heel till it's out of shape. From the very beginning, the first sin, the disastrous beginning of creation, in the beginning of our Bible, there's a promise. There's an expectation given. Satan will be crushed. Your head is going to be crushed, smashed. So the rest of the Bible is God's love story of seeking reconciliation with his people. The rest of the Bible awaits the fulfillment of the curse placed upon the devil for his head to be crushed. So the question is, what offspring of Eve will be the one to finally crush Satan's head? Who's going to do the final crushing? Remember, during this story, who is there that's going to be also through the rest of the story of the Bible? Satan has fallen before creation. Because we have Satan in the story. He had to have fallen before this happened. The angelic hosts are watching. The angelic hosts know that this is Who's going to crush his head? jump clear into 1st Chronicles chapter 17 1st Chronicles chapter 17 on page 279 1st Chronicles chapter 17 verse 3 starting verse 1 now when David lived in his house David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I have commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? No. Therefore, thus says the Lord, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I will declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all these, this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So 1 Chronicles 17, David has become a king, which there's a lot of saga to that story. Big saga. 
David has become the king and he has his palace. And he goes to Nathan the prophet and you can see his meritorious idea. Man, I've got this beautiful palace and they've God's in a tent. Now the tabernacle was a pretty sweet tent. I've taught the kids and kid nations like the best tent ever made. But David's, you can see his idea. Hey, we've made it. We, I'm established as a king. This, the country's kind of settled. We've made these beautiful buildings. We've gone from a nomadic people to building buildings. Well, we should build a church. We should build the temple. God's still dwelling in the tent thing. So it's a great idea. So Nathan says, hey, God's with you, David. You've been a really cool dude getting this ark here. And there's a whole saga to that. Go for it. Well, God shows up to Nathan that night and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. okay, I, I want you to go tell David this. And while he's got this cool idea of building me a house, I want you to tell him good news about what I'm going to do with his house or his descendants. God's got big plans. And he's going to unveil those right here with Nathan to David. And they're monstrous. It's bigger than a house. It's bigger than a nation. It's not going to be you, David, who's going to build the house. I haven't needed a house to dwell in for a long, long time. And those who I've said, hey, rule, judge, govern my people, I haven't told them to build a house. So now that you're asking, it's going to be your kid, David, which we know is Solomon. And by the way, David, I took you from the pasture, being a shepherd, to be king, to shepherd my people as their ruler. And I'm going to plant Israel and establish them. The nomadic people is going to be an established people. Big deal is, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to give you descendants. How long will they last? Forever. If you're a king and you want to know how long your reign is going to last. And it's a great big deal with your kids. When God says forever and he makes a big promise, it's a big deal. David asked about building a house. God says, all right, well, I'll answer your question. Solomon's going to build a house. But the big news is you will be king and through your descendants, my throne will be forever. God promised that from the line of David, one of his descendants would rule. One of his offspring should sit on a kingly throne, a dynasty that would reign forever. The great expectation for David is what? One of my kids is going to rule forever. That has never been heard in the history of the world. We've got some long-running dynasties. The Chinese were pretty good at that. But when we have one that's still going today? No. So wait a second. Offspring of David would rule forever. So we've got the great expectation from Eve. Hey, one of your kids is going to crush Satan's head. Then you got the expectation from David. Hey, one of your kids is going to rule forever. So... Why talk about these two ideas? How in the world does this make any difference from, for us at Christmas with our expectations? This is where these two collide. 
history way, way back, starting with Eve, a promise to her, and Satan's still alive to say, well, who's going to crush my head, has been waiting. Then you got David and a whole nother line of thought saying, one of my kids is going to rule forever. Has been waiting. You're like, well, Jesus is this baby little thing that came in at Christmas and he's born and the angels sang some good stuff. And we start in Luke 2. You ever wonder why you start in Luke 2? What about Luke 1? Hey, it answers this question. It's some boring genealogy. So let's turn there to the boring stuff and see why is it such a big deal that these two would converge? Luke chapter 1. Start in verse 67. We're on page 710. And his father, Zechariah, talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, verse 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of the, all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Verse 76. And you, child, and you, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of our sins. So John the Baptist is, you know, you remember the story where they came to, the, the angel comes to Zechariah and says, hey, this is going to happen. And he's like, how's that going to happen? And the angel says, since you didn't believe, you're not going to talk. No more. So John the Baptist is born, and they're like, how are you going to name the kid? And they said, we're going to name him John. And so once the prophecy comes true, then all of a sudden, Zechariah can talk. And when he gets to talk for the first time, this is what he says. Here's the good news of what's going to happen. God has visited and redeemed his people. It's a big deal when God visits. God shows up. The word redeem means buying back from the marketplace. He's going to redeem. He's not only going to visit, but he's going to redeem. And what's the other great big news that Zechariah gives about Jesus, that John the Baptist is going to say about Jesus? He's from where? Salvation is coming from where? The house of David. Now, the beginning... That connects with the God's promise, the expectation through David. Through you, somebody's going to sit on the throne. In those First Chronicles 17, was there anything about dealing with sin? No, it was all like, hey, you're going to have a cool king sit there, and he's going to be there forever. I'm like, yeah. The whole Eve sin things, crushing Satan's head. Now we're going to combine those. FYI, beginning of Matthew is some other boring genealogy stuff. Matthew 1, 1, 1, 6, and 1, 16 connects Jesus to David. Why is that such a big deal? 
wow, First Chronicles 17 is kind of legit. That's kind of something that you were looking for a descendant of somebody. Somebody would say, if he's king, then how's he related to David? Matthew 1, 1, 1, 6, and 1, 16. Connect them. So God's going to visit. God's going to redeem his people. He's going to raise up the horn of salvation in the house of David. It's the cool idea that not only is he going to be a ruler, but he's going to take care of our sin needs. God said he was going to do this by Nathan, or as Zechariah says, the holy prophets of old. Who would be? Nate. Nate said this a long, long time ago. And you're going to be the one who's going to proclaim this, John. God's going to show mercy that he promised to our fathers. And he will remember his holy covenant that he swore with Abraham. And you can see him, John, my child, you're going to be Jesus' prophet. You're going to be his prophet to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation, and to give knowledge of forgiveness of sins. Two massive expectations collide in Luke chapter 1. The head crusher and the eternal king. He's going to take care of sin. Two massive expectations collide. Jesus is the fulfillment of the ruling king. Jesus is the one who will crush Satan's head. Yes, Jesus is the king. But somebody tell me where Jesus, if I wanted to get in my car or go buy a plane ticket today to go see Jesus ruling, where would I go? It's true. Come on now. You told me that he was, he was the king and you were going to have one set on the throne. So where's David's throne? Okay. Wait a minute. You're talking about expectations all the way from Genesis 3, 1 Chronicles 17, and Luke chapter 1 that aren't true, that aren't yet happened yet. You mean there's still great expectations for us? Yes, we have the sin problem resolved, but is Satan still alive? 1 Peter tells us, be wary for Satan, your enemy, roams like a lion looking forward to whom to devour. He's still alive and active. The good news is why we started this morning in Revelation, because the end of the story is Jesus tosses his identity into jail forever. And it's not a hospitable living arrangement. So the end we know. Revelation 20, the end of the Bible, here's the head crusher crushing him. His head is crushed and he's bound forever. How far apart is Genesis to Revelation? Kind of like the ends of the book. Where are we? We're not there yet. So these great expectations are still our expectations. Jesus will return. When Zechariah, there's prophecy of Jesus coming in and ruling. The triumphant entry we just studied in John. Why was everybody so excited he rode in on a donkey? Here comes our king. Here comes our king. Here comes our king. But Zechariah also says we've got to deal with the sin problem. And there's a lot of more text about what this king will do when he gets here. We're still waiting on this. The complete fulfillment of Satan's head getting crushed. We still have great expectations. It's not done. This is the time of year we celebrate Jesus coming, yes. And why did he come this time? Did he come at Christmas? 
What was his role? What did he do? Did he, was he king? When he got all done, did he have a throne? Was he sitting on a throne? Well, where did he go? Now, when he ascended to heaven, Ephesians tells us, where is he sitting? The right hand of the Father. He is a ruling authority. Everything has been in subjection to him. He's the boss. He's the king. He's calling the shots. But there will be a time when he literally touches down on earth, and we know exactly where that's going to be, Mount Olives. It hasn't happened yet. So we still expect that. Our great expectations of this time is also Jesus' reign and eventual defeat of Satan. The story is yet still being told. What part do we have in telling this story? First off, is the baby Jesus your Savior? That's why he came. Death, burial, and resurrection, and promised return. Death, burial, and resurrection is our sin problem. John the Baptist was Jesus' neon sign saying, this is the one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cool news is that was our crucified Savior, but he's our risen Lord, King. First, this morning is Jesus your Savior. Then how do you serve in the expectation of your King? If Jesus now is the risen King, we're waiting for him to come back and inaugurate his reign. How do we live then? How do you serve that King? Because you can have a Savior and get you some Jesus stuff, take care of my sin problem. I'm good with that. But now you have a ruling king. Where is your citizenship? What I mean by that, life and light of future expectations. If you believe that Jesus is the ruling king who will come and set up his kingdom, do you live in such a way that you evidence citizenship there or whether or not you vote a Democrat or Republican? So in our community, this is a great time of year. People like the baby Jesus. In Hallmark cards at Walmart today, you can probably go pick you up a baby Jesus. It's easy to talk about a baby Jesus. Can you connect that in normal conversation without being awkward to that's our Savior? He was born to die. There's good news in that major. Wow. I don't know, you know. Well, he was born in a manger. I mean, it was like exactly not good hospital. So the sin of the world and an unmet expectation is what I'm saying. That, look, we're frustrated about what is affecting your life. Jesus came to for, take care of that. And we're talking about expectations. If Christmas is one thing, it's the hallmark card of unmet expectations. Ask every teenager who wants a new McLaren car for Christmas. So we go from baby Jesus to Savior. Now he's a Savior and he's a risen King. How do we communicate in our community the hope of our future expectations? Are you one of those people that the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the world is horrible and it's going to be bad and blah, blah, blah. Or do you have hope of future expectations that regardless of what happens here, my King is ruling, my King is coming back and he promised to make all things new.
thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org.